To start this morning, I want to give a, a brief history lesson, and if you're not a history fan, it's perfectly okay because it is very brief. Uh, the United States established a patent office in 1790. Now, they didn't staff it until 1802, so I guess government worked back then about like it does now. But uh, since that time, since it became uh, an office and they started staffing it, over 10 million patents have been offered to inventors in the United States. And, and a, a simple definition of a patent is that it is this exclusive right that is granted for an invention to the inventor. That, that when someone invents something, they, they can lay claim to it, that it's theirs. And so the patent is basically legality. It, it, it makes it the legal right of the person uh, that they have exclusive privileges over what they have made. And the reason that we have a United States Patent Office is because the Congress was given the powers to create one in the Constitution. When the Constitution was written, patent laws were written into the Constitution. Our founding fathers said this should be part of our government, of our country, that you have legal rights to the things that you make. And it's not just the United States. Almost every country in the world today has a patent law. As a matter of fact, it's easier to count the ones that do not have them than those who do. I bring that up to you because society recognizes that if you invent something, if you make something, you should have ownership of it. And we have been working that into our laws in society since at least the 1400s. We recognize that rule all over the world. That if you make it, you own it. We recognize that all over the world except when it comes to God. When it comes to God, if we believe in God, the world as a whole does not acknowledge that God has the right to do what He wants with what He made. We, as a people throughout time, have not only failed to recognize, but we have rebelled against the idea that God has a right to direct what He made to do what pleases Him for them to do. And Psalm 24 opens up with a declaration, if you will, of a patent law. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof the world and those who dwell therein. For He has founded it upon the seas and He has established it upon the rivers. If you're a note taker and you grabbed one of the worship guides this morning, we're going to start with this life truth. God makes two legal claims on the world and its people. God makes two legal claims on the world and all its people. And here are those claims. He is creator and He is sustainer. God says to us, 
everything is mine. The world is mine. Everything in it is mine because I founded it and I established it. That word founded means laid the foundation. I started it. I created it. When, when he's wrestling with, or when Job is wrestling with him in the Old Testament, God asked Job a question, where were you when I laid the foundations to everything? You weren't there. None of us were. It was God. This is His idea, His creation. He founded it, and then He established it. That word established, it means continue to secure. When you establish something, you ensure its security in an ongoing fashion. Another way to put that is provision. You provide for what you have made to secure it. God is the one who founded everything and established everything. He is the creator and He is the sustainer. And in our world, in our society, we look at human beings and we look at what we make and we say patent laws. We should have those. Because if you make it, it's yours. You have ownership over it. But to God we say, tell me what I should do or not do. Don't tell me what's right or wrong. Don't tell me what I should do with what is mine. Psalm 24 is bringing us back as a reminder everything is His because He made it and He sustains it. Paul took this idea in Acts 17. If you have a Bible and you want to turn there this morning and go to verse 22, Paul is in Athens and he is traveling through Athens, and he takes the opportunity to share the gospel. I'm going to read Acts chapter 17, verse 22 through 33. Paul, standing, says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet, He is actually not far from each of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed His offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. And when they heard of this resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, 
we will hear you again about this. And so Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. Paul is standing among temples in Athens to various gods that are made of stone, jewels, and he finds this one statue that says to an unknown god. These people were so religious with their pagan gods that they were afraid perhaps they had missed one. So they created a statue to the unknown God. And Paul uses that to say, there is a God that is not listed among all of these temples. And He is a God that does not live in something that you make for Him to live in. And He is not a God that you can see in your stone and your jewels. He is unknown to you, but let me make Him known today. He is the God who made it all. He is the Creator of everything. And not only that, but even right now, He gives life and breath to all mankind. He uses this phrase, He says, in Him we live and move and have our being. And He actually, there, doesn't quote the Old Testament. He quotes some pagan Greek poet that He was familiar with. And He said, some of your own men have written this. In Him we live and move and have our being. And actually, some people believe that was talking about Zeus. And Paul says, they're right. They just have it all wrong. They're right about what they're saying, but they're aiming it to the wrong God. It's not to these gods. They're false. It's to the God you do not yet know. In Him we live and move and have our being. That statement is true for all of us. It is true for every person on earth. In Him we live. That simply means we are alive because of Him. We are living and breathing. We are a alive creature because of Him. And in Him we move. And that doesn't mean the mechanics of moving like I'm doing right now. It's actually talking, it's a Greek word, it means to to be stirred in your emotions. In Him, we are creatures that have emotions. We feel. We get angry, we get sad, we're happy. In Him, we have those emotions. And in Him, we have our being, our existence. We are a being We can think. We can reason. It is in Him that we are who we are. And that is true of every person on earth, whether they're sitting in a seat at Agape Church in 2024 having confessed their faith to Jesus, or they were a first century Greek who lived in Athens and had no idea who the true God was. And every person before and in between and that will come after us, it is true of them. They live and move and have their being because of God. Everything's His. Everything. He owns it. And this has implications for our life. And I want to look in your notes. I want to talk for a moment about some of those implications. One, this truth, and I'm going to go back to what I think we were kind of was happening at the end of worship. This is serious. This is the seriousness of what we're doing. 
It's the seriousness of what we believe. It's the seriousness of saying, I'm a Christian. There's a seriousness to it. To know there is a God and to say, yes, I affirm He owns everything. There, there are implications to that for our lives. Far more than just Sunday morning. Far more than just when we go to a religious service. Number one, there are relational implications. When it comes to how we relate to others, the fact that God owns everything, there's implications to that. In verse 28, he says, we are His offspring. And again, he's quoting one of the the Greeks there, but he says, we are His offspring. That is not the same as being a child of God as we would, as the New Testament defines those who are in Christ and have the right to be a child of God and inherit the kingdom of God. This is though the being an offspring, a descendant of God, that everyone, all people, are His offspring, descended from Him. This has relational implications for us. And we could spend the rest of our time talking about what some of those implications are. But what we can say for now is that the person next to you and behind you and in front of you, they belong to God. They belong to Him. They will be accountable to Him. It definitely informs how we pray. God, they are yours. Help them. God, they belong to you. Provide for them. God, they belong to you. Show them the way they should go. How often do we get angry in our relationships because people won't do what we say? They don't act the way we want them to act. They don't think the way we want them to think. They're not ours. They belong to Him. So we can pray for them that way. God, this is what I think they should do. God, this is how I think they should act. But God, they don't belong to me. They belong to You. You show them. You teach them. You change them. And it certainly should change how we react to people that we're angry with. They've hurt me. They've done things to me. I'm at odds with them. Who am I to withhold forgiveness? They don't belong to me. If I withhold forgiveness from them, I'm withholding forgiveness from someone who belongs to God. And it has implications about how we think toward people and treat people based on external things. Charles Spurgeon, when he wrote about this, by the way, I've discovered in the last couple of days, not everybody is familiar with Charles Spurgeon. My son this week told me that he thought he was someone from the 70s that I grew up watching because I talked about him a lot. Just a really old Baptist preacher from like the 1800s. But Spurgeon, when he wrote to his church about this, said, some of you are of one race and you're looking down upon another race because they don't have the same skin color you do when we all belong to him. That's what Paul said in 
Colossians 3. We, we studied a few months ago. Put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. No longer with Christ should you look at people and consider Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. It's all about Jesus. Christ is all and Christ is in all. So stop making distinctions among yourselves in ways that divide you because we are all His offspring. There are relational implications to this truth. There are global implications to this truth. Verse 26 and 27, And He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Why is a Jew in Athens preaching about the Jewish God? Because he's not just the Jewish God. That's what Paul had come to understand. He is not a God who belongs to one race, one civilization, one country. He is a global God who owns everything. Some of us don't wrestle with this. Okay? Some of us don't. Some of us, we do. He is not just the southern God. He is not just the American God. He is the God of every person, every nation on the earth. He has determined where we live and when we live that we might reach after Him and seek Him and find Him. We, as a group of people living in Pinson, Alabama, will have the most opportunity to share the Gospel and impact the world for Christ in the community that we live in that we work in, but we must not put blinders on and make Him to be just the God of our context. He is the God of the whole world. The whole world will be accountable to Him. And there is some way in which we should be concerned about the people of the whole world in every nation because they all belong to Him. So there are relational implications, global implications, and there are personal implications. So look at what Paul says, verse 30 and 31. The time of ignorance God overlooked. The time before Christ, the time before God spoke supremely through His Son. The time before the birth the life, the death, the resurrection of Christ. But now, now is the time He commands all people everywhere to repent. Because now they can. Because Christ has come. And the doorway to the presence of God and to have peace with God is opened through the body, the blood, the resurrection of Jesus. So repent. Because 
He has fixed a day. That's important. It is not an ever-changing calendar. It is not God saying, well, I'm just going to kind of see how I feel about it, depending on what happens here or there. He has determined a day, and it has been fixed. And that day is coming, and more importantly, all of us are barreling toward that day. All of eternity toward that day on which He will judge the world in righteousness. And He will be judged by a man that He has appointed. The man that He raised from the dead, Jesus Christ, His Son. The Son of God. That day is coming. I want to go back to a moment to the patent law for this idea of personal implication. And it's the hardest one. It's the hardest one. The relational implications, those are tough. The global implications, that might be something we wrestle with. This is the hardest one. Because here it is. I don't belong to me. You don't belong to you. Want to get really technical. It's not your mind, not your eyes, not your fingers, not your hands, not your feet. He made you. He has ownership of you. He gives you freedom to an extent. We have a will. We can make choices. But there's a fixed day coming where we will be judged. He has every right to put me where He chooses. He has every right to do with my life what He wants. He has every right to tell me how I should live. He has every right because He made me and He is sustaining me right now. That, that church is the hardest one. It's the hardest one. Because that's, that's not how our flesh wants to live. It's not how we want to think. We don't like being bossed around. We don't like being told what to do. And we have, we've been raised in a, a very a wonderful place with a lot of affluence and opportunities afforded us because of where we live, but a place that values personal independence highly. And it's great to an extent until the point that it gets us to where we don't even think God has the right to tell us what to do. But I want, you, I want to know, us to know, I want us to see, going back to Psalm 24 for a moment, that this idea that we don't belong to ourselves and this idea that we don't really have the right to, to do what we want to do and think how we want to think, that, that this doesn't lead us to ruin. That's the lie of the world. It's the lie of Satan. It's, the, it's what hell puts out. That if you submit to God and you acknowledge His ownership and you line your life up the way He wants you to, it's going to lead you to misery and ruin and destruction. And it's complete opposite of that. Do you understand? Being our own God and doing our own thing and determining our own lives, that is what's going to lead us to ruin and destruction. Looking to God and acknowledging His Lordship, 
leads us to blessings. Look at verse 5 and 6 in Psalm 24. The person that we're going to look at in just a moment, the person who looks to God will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of His salvation. The person who acknowledges God and His sovereignty and His care and His leadership over their lives, that person will be blessed from the Lord. That person is going to inherit the kingdom of God. That person is going to reign with Christ. Not over Him, but with Him. We will be blessed in our fear of the Lord. We talked about this a few weeks ago. How the fear of the Lord is the pathway into the love of the Lord, into a wise life. Being afraid, being reverent, being humble, and knowing, I belong to you. I am breathing right now in your will, in your pleasure. One day I'll stand before you. One day I'm going to see Christ face to face, the image of the invisible God. And I'm going to give an account of my life. That should lead us to the fear of the Lord, which will lead us to the blessings of the Lord. These traits, the traits that are mentioned in verse 3 and 4, belong to this person who acknowledges God's ownership over their life, who joyfully submits to that ownership, who's going to receive blessings from the Lord. If you look at verse 6, it says, such is the generation of those who seek Him. What he's saying is, everything I've just talked about, this is what the generation looks like. This is what the people look like who really seek Him, the, who seek after the face of God, which means personal relationship, face-to-face. I want to... This is the person who says, God owns it all. The whole world is His. I want to find Him. I want to go be with Him. I want to see Him face to face. I want to have relationship with Him because I believe I will have His blessing and I will have salvation. So I want to pursue this God that has made everything. So different from the world who says, He doesn't own me and He doesn't tell me what to do and I want nothing to do with Him and they... They turn their back that this person, this generation that says, no, I want to be with God. This is what the generation looks like. And he's describing verse 3 and 4 where he gives traits of what it looks like. The traits of those who belong. Excuse me, the the traits that belong to those who seek after God in a true relationship. Number one, They are deliberate in their seeking. They're deliberate in their seeking. Verse 3, the question gets asked, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in His holy place? In other words, who can do that? Who can go to where this God is? He is high and lifted up. We sang that this morning, didn't we? We did. Yeah. It was in my mind. We're saying that. He's high and lifted up. He's on the hill. Now we know He's more than just sitting on a hill, but, but He is above us all because He's created it all. 
I want to go find Him face to face. Who can do that? Who can ascend His hill? Who can go stand where He is? The, look, if, if you are among the people, if you are among the people who acknowledge His ownership, if you are among the people who joyfully humble yourself under God's sovereign rule, if you are among those people, you will be deliberate in your seeking. It's not accidentally going to happen. And you're not going to have the mindset of, I, I, I can't wait to meet God one day. Right now, I'm just going to kind of focus on my stuff. There's going to be a deliberate seeking. I haven't tried to climb a hill in a while. Maybe some of you have. But I, I do remember the last time I tried to climb a hill. It was kind of hard. It was a little difficult. Deliberately seeking after God will not always be easy. There are times where ascending will come with it a lot of complications. I gave you a little quote in your notes from an, an old theologian. To be of the number of Christ's true faithful servants is no slight work. It's a fight. It's a race. It's a continual warfare. All that we call difficult is to be found in the way we are to go. Not only to ascend, but to stand there. To be constant in truth and piety. That will be hard indeed. And, and that wasn't just an old theologian that said that. Jesus said it. In Luke 14, Jesus gave a call to Himself that is quite different than our modern call to come to Christ that we sometimes hear in evangelical circles. Jesus put the, the call this way. Great crowds accompanied Him and He turned and said to them, by the way, what for us is like the thing that, you know, I say us, maybe church leaders or being in, in, the, in the church today, what's the thing that it seems like, oh, this is success, this is great. What is it? Crowds. Crowds. Let's gather the crowds. We've got a lot of people coming. Here's what Jesus did when He saw crowds following Him. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. You would be ran out of, right? We would get ran out of a church today focused on crowds if that was the opening line. Jesus looks at all these people following him and he said, hey, hey, I got just a quick word for all of you. Uh, if you don't hate your whole family, uh, then you can't actually follow after me. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Whoever is not willing to lay down on their own cross and sacrifice their own flesh and life and what they want, you can't be my disciple for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has had enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish it, all who see it began to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. That's hard words from Jesus. It's even hard when we read them today, but 
Jesus was saying, you, you need to understand from the very beginning of following me, this isn't going to be easy. It's going to cost you something. And, and I don't want you to get caught up in being a false follower. I don't want you to have security of thinking that everything is good between you and I because you're following me on some false pretense because I do miracles and I, and I, I, I provide for you food and things that you need. I, I want you to understand from the beginning, it, it's going to be hard at times. It's going to cost you something at times. I want you to understand that it's going to, it's really going to be like you're going to have to lay your life down. Like it's not going to be about what you want to do anymore. It's not just going to be about how you want to think and you want to act and you want it. Like you're going to have to, there's going to be a lot of times your flesh is going to get crucified. When that person hurts you and I say forgive, it's going to be like you're being crucified. When I give you something and I tell you to give it away, it's going to be like I'm, I'm, I'm telling you to, to die. It's going to be hard at times. You're going to get persecuted at times. People are going to make fun of you at times. You're not going to be well-liked. There are even going to be times where following me is going to mean you're going to have to leave behind people who love you dearly. People that you love dearly. There's going to be times where you following me is going to put a separation between you and your parents, you and your children, because you're going to go with me and they're going to refuse to go. And you're going to have to love me more. It's going to be hard. So let me ask you this. Why do we go? Knowing that it's that difficult, why do we go? It's not what we have created it to be. It's not what is out there in the world today because we'll get riches and health. and It's not His message. Why do we go? The way you really know, the way you really know that you were among that generation of those who seek after God is because you're like those disciples that Jesus turned to when all these crowds left Him. And he looked at those 12 he had called and he said, are you guys going to leave too? He looked at the, the women that were with him that followed him everywhere he went and said, are you going to leave too? And their response was, where would we go? Life is with you. Why do we go when it's hard? Because life is with Christ. Because where else will we go? They are deliberate in their seeking. And a few more traits. They are sincere in their inner devotion. The true seeker, the one who's really pursuing God, they're deliberate in their seeking even when it costs them something. And that's how you know their devotion is sincere. The way the psalmist put it is they have a pure heart. You have a pure heart. Because that love that you have for, for God is, is real. It's why the, the, the persecution and the trouble and the difficulty doesn't make you get off the path. You stay on the path because you truly belong to Him. We are offspring of God by nature of our first birth, but we are the children of God who have a pure heart 
because of our second birth, being born again, the spiritual birth that happens when we place our faith in Christ. So they are sincere in their inner devotion and they are holy in their outward works. They are holy in their outward works. Again, verse 4. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who's going to make this deliberate search? The one who has the pure heart. The one who has clean hands. Holy actions. Holy works. Growing in holiness. We're going to get there in a moment that we are not made holy and we don't have holy works because we obey really well. It's because of the pure heart that we have that has come from faith in Christ. That is what causes us to grow in holiness. But don't, don't, don't overlook it. Don't make any bones about this. Our actions in our lives, the external things of our lives, should follow the pure heart. Over time, we grow in holiness. Over time, we grow in what we're putting down that we're no longer going to be a part of. And we're growing in the things that we're picking up that we are going to be a part of. We're going to say, I, I can't have these things in my life anymore. And we're going to say, I have to have more abiding with Christ. We're going to see that happening when we are truly pursuing Him. We're going to be sincere in inner devotion, holy in our outward works. And just a couple of what I think are, and the reason I did in your outline, I think there are sub-points to that idea of holiness. One is, those seekers are obedient in their decisions. They're obedient to God in all the decisions that they make. I don't mean we're perfect in it, but I mean we're going to think about what God's Word says when we make our decisions. Because in verse 4, he says, it's those who do not lift up their soul to what is false. Lifting up your soul is giving your life over to what is false. Remember last week, Psalm 19, what is true? The Word of God. To lift our lives up to something that is false would mean we lift our lives up to that which opposes God's Word. So the true seeker, the one who wants to find God who owns their life and be with Him, they're deliberately searching because they have this beautiful, pure heart that God has given them, holy in their works, and they're obedient. They, I want to know what you say, God. I want to please you. I want to act in a way that is pleasing to you. And they are trustworthy in their oaths. They're trustworthy in what they say. Literally, they don't swear deceitfully. They don't testify dishonestly. They are people of integrity. What we say, what we promise, what we testify about is true. And a person of integrity seeking after God we are trustworthy when people are looking and when people are not. We are devoted to God when we are seen and we are devoted to Him when we are unseen. We are not just trying to be holy and good and righteous people because if we didn't, we would disappoint our church or we would disappoint our family. Those might be good things to think about, but ultimately, we want to be trustworthy to Him. We want to be pleasing to Him. And that brings us to these last few verses. And before I read them, I want to I ask the question, what is this psalm about? 
because where does this come from? Because it's got some things in it that's it's like, well, especially with these last four verses, like what, what is going on here? We don't know for sure, but many scholars believe this was a song that David wrote that was either after or sung during the content of 2 Samuel 6 when the ark of God was brought into Jerusalem. If you go read 2 Samuel 6, David has been anointed king. He defeats the Philistines. He brings the ark to Jerusalem. They don't do it in the way that God prescribed. Uzziah reaches out, touches the ark. He dies. David says, I'm not going any further with this. Puts it in someone's home for three months. Then David gets word that there's a lot of blessings going on over there where the ark is in that home. And David says, okay, praise God. Let's go ahead and, and get the ark into Jerusalem. And, and then they go and they, and they do it the right way. And this idea that this song was sung during that time. Lift up your heads, O gates, the gates of Jerusalem. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, doors of Jerusalem, that the King of glory may come in. The ark in the Old Testament, the place between the cherubim where the presence of God resided. Here is this magnificent, magnificent procession of God's people bringing in the ark, the presence of God into Jerusalem. Lift up your heads that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? He is the Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Picture them singing this as the ark is being brought into Jerusalem. The Lord, strong and mighty, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? He is the Lord of hosts of heaven and earth. He is the King of glory. What a moment that would have been. What a majestic song. And I want you to know, it's all about Jesus. Every bit of it points to Jesus. I hope you know the answers to these questions. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who has that perfectly pure heart? Who has the clean hands? Who doesn't lift his soul up to what is false? Who does not swear deceitfully? One man in all of history fits that bill. Jesus Christ. He's the answer to that question. Who who can ascend the hill of the Lord and stand in His holy place? Jesus. It's all about Him. Who's the King of glory? Jesus. In your notes, look to Jesus. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? I answered that question with John 3.13. A direct quotation. No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. No one ascends to where God is except the one who came from God, Jesus Christ. There is a sense in which we, who have looked to Jesus, yes, we are deliberate in our seeking of Him. We have a pure heart. We strive for clean hands. We don't lift up our soul to what is false. We don't swear deceitfully. But we 
Don't do those things in hopes that we might one day get to where God is. We do those things because there was only one man who could ever go to where God is, and that's the one who came from God, Jesus Christ. And we believe upon Jesus, the one who has ascended that hill. And we look to Him, and we abide with Him. Because He has come down from heaven to die for us, to die in our place, because we are people who don't have a pure heart, and we don't have clean hands, and we lift up our souls to what is false, and we swear deceitfully. So Jesus took our place and died our death, and then He looks at us and He says, if you believe upon Me and My sacrifice, come to Me, abide with Me. It will be hard. It will be hard at times. You're going to have to lay down on your own cross and it may cost you family and friends, but if you will cling to Me, I'm going to God and you will go with Me. And not only will you go with Me, but you will reign with Me. And all of God's blessings will be yours. To finish it up, 1 Thessalonians 3.13 talks about when Christ returns. And it says, when He returns and we enter into the new heaven and the new earth, upon His entering of that new heaven and new earth, with Him will be all His saints. So let's read it one more time. And picture not now the ark into Jerusalem and the procession of the Old Testament saints. Picture the new heavens and new earth, if you possibly can. Picture Jesus at the front of the procession, the very image of God, fully God, leading all the saints. My mom's going to be in that crowd of people. All who have went before us, who you love, who died in Christ, are going to be in that procession. All of you in this room who know Jesus and love Jesus, you will be in that procession and He will bring you in with Him. And you will live there forever. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? Jesus Christ, strong and mighty. Jesus Christ, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? Jesus over all the host. He is the King of glory. And if you put your faith in Him, you go with Him.